We're seeing that there is a real public consequence from the way that data corporations use data. Are there economic incentives for some companies to hold information that would otherwise be really good for human health or human safety? And I think we're going to come to loggerheads. Welcome to another edition of Demystifying Science, where we take apart the heart of human complexity. During last week's episode, we talked about inviting discomfort in order to become a stronger, wiser, more balanced creature. It was all about how a robust sense of personal responsibility could be used to make your world and the shared world a better place. Taking care of yourself can seem insignificant in the face of a society increasingly ruled by faceless multinational corporations with Byzantine customer service departments. But there's a lot that can be done, both on and offline, that'll push your world towards a better, more resilient future. To that end, today's episode and the interview that follows is all about cyber warfare. Now war ain't what it used to be for most of your species history. No spears and shields, no trenches separated by no man's land, and no lines of people shooting each other across a literal battlefield. Military engagement happens increasingly remotely through unmanned drones. Battle body counts are dropping, and countries are so economically interdependent that wartime disruption, despite enormous economic incentives for the military-industrial complex, isn't as profitable as stability. These days, the biggest threat hanging over conflicting national heads isn't mutually assured destruction by way of nuclear warheads. It's an online battle for the heart and soul of the global populace. Given that this war is waged online, through social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, Preventing the coming chaos might require you to become diligent stewards of your information ecosystems and to demand accountability from the tenders of the almighty algorithms. Or just let the whole thing fall apart into its constitutive pieces. Imagine a 21st century version of the nation-defining Treaty of Westphalia, but lines are now drawn between cities and the countryside instead of along European rivers and ranges. Which is probably not the best outcome for the United States since the existence of human rights seems to be dependent on trust in the democratic nature of a just and merciful society. To really get to the bottom of the threat and what individuals can do about it, we need to have a consistent definition of cyber warfare, a term that's been used to refer to two very different approaches. The first use of the term has a lot to do with direct attacks on key infrastructure. Hackers break down the door of the electrical grid, water treatment systems, or medical treatment facilities. We won't really be talking about this kind of cyber warfare in this video, but we will in later conversations. Subscribe and ask for notifications because that's something that you won't want to miss. The cyber warfare we're concerned with here is much more nuanced form of combat. It has less to do with direct assaults on infrastructure and everything to do with the interactions ordinary people have with one another on the internet. This cyber warfare consists of veiled incursions on the spirit of a people rather than destruction of their material security. In a recent report by the RAND Corporation, a long-running US think tank that's been involved in lots of big projects, from the invention of the internet, to the development of the International Space Station, to the design of the healthcare system, today's cyber warfare is described as hostile social manipulation, which involves the purposeful systemic generation and dissemination of information to produce harmful social, political, and economic outcomes in a target country by affecting beliefs, attitude, and behavior. Cyber warfare of this kind rarely rises to the level of a discrete attack. Instead, it happens at low levels all the time. And through the use of botnets or whole battalions of human operators, foreign and domestic agencies work around the clock to erode the trust in ideas, institutions, and the neighborliness that holds a nation together. But why? Why would governments and corporations alike be interested in destabilizing society? 
Well, it depends on who's responsible, right? A state like China, Russia, or Saudi Arabia might be interested in seeing the United States self-immolate to clear the way for their agendas on a global scale. Remember, Rome fell to civil war before being conquered from beyond its walls. Presumably, if the US government's busy putting out wildfires at home, the government has a lot less time and energy to guard against political maneuvering abroad. And then there's the domestic actors, who can take many different forms. Everybody from coal to big tech is very interested in making sure that their interests are addressed on the national state. And it turns out the best way to accomplish this is by following a tactic that the US has perfected abroad over the course of the last century, from Latin America to Iraq, shock the social fabric in order to shake a competitor nation's trust in the very institution of democracy. Persistent cyber warfare leads to something called truth decay, where there's an accelerated disagreement about the facts that underpin reality, and the interpretation of those facts as well. Where the line between subjective and objective interpretations blurs, lived experiences triumph over data, and faith in stalwart institution evaporates. But before you buy 50 pounds of textured vegetable protein, a shipping container, and head for the hills, consider that the spread of mis- and disinformation doesn't seem to be a new problem. There hasn't been a widespread abandonment of reality in favor of fervent feelings. People still want experts, and they still want to know the accurate version of events. And what does seem to have increased, though, is sensationalism. The prevalence of shocking, clickable titles for the sole purpose of driving traffic and shuttling your eyeballs towards eventual advertisements. And this, dear Earth friends, is where grabbing the bull by the horns comes in. Because ending incentive structures that power the tide of viral reporting might require that each of you muster the strength to boycott this breed of links that your reptile brains scream out for you to click. Well said. Think of it like breaking an increasingly destructive addiction to caffeine, cocaine, or sugar. It's incredibly difficult, but probably really good for you, and everyone around you. Rising sensationalism is driven in no small part by the dominance of social media platforms over traditional media houses, a complete reversal in the status quo of the public information landscape from a few decades past. When the internet was invented, wild ideas were easily ignored by the mainstream, which made them mostly invisible. That's because, in the early days of the web, there were fringe websites with small but devoted followings. But there was no way for these sites to take over the media landscape, since access to attention markets was controlled by a small number of legacy corporations that carefully managed the narrative. That changed briefly when old-school media ceded people's attention to aggregator sites like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit. Once upon a time, these were places where ideas were exchanged freely and where popularity ebbed and flowed like an ocean tide without the need for a stamp of approval from the mainstream. The reason people preferred those aggregator platforms in the early days was because of the hands-off attitude the techno-industrial Pharisees had about what people posted. There was a lot of hope that the internet would be a place that was beyond the control of corporations, but that started to shift when these sites became the exact monoliths they promised to replace. Increasing censorship online is a late-stage attempt to stem the damage caused by all of these cyber warfare campaigns. But it's too little too late because these campaigns didn't create new narratives. They just amplified existing issues into a fever pitch. It's easy to manipulate people into losing trust because these systems have actually failed them. 99% of the people on Earth control only 1% of the wealth. Most live on the edge of the gig economy, always just a paycheck away from sleeping in the streets. In that climate, it's easy to undermine participation in shared goals like environmentalism and civic responsibility. Partisan polarization and the rise of horseshoe authoritarianism make collaboration on even the most basic issues seem like a naive dream. Instead, 
People whose vital needs are threatened. Like stable income, food supply, health care, a promising future for their children. Exactly. Those needs are unmet as the ratio of wages to corporate profits spirals out of control, which makes it easy to stoke the fires of division. Cyber warfare uses misdirection to get people focused on intersectional issues rather than on the class struggle that underpins all other problems. Eventually, exhaustion in the face of global problems allows bad actors to weaponize pessimism, which decreases voter turnout, decimates political organizing, and really ensures the status quo keeps purring along unchallenged. Being distracted by cyber warfare campaigns ensures that authoritarian regimes can continue to execute 4,000 people a year, and CEOs can continue earning millions while employees barely subsist, all because you humans have lost faith in each other along the way. And the bad news is that things are probably going to get worse before they get better. You humans have only just scratched the surface of your information age, and the ability of algorithms to decide what you see and do is only going to heat up. The Internet of Things, for example, a network of billions of internet-enabled sensors, will collect millions of data points about each of you, and these pieces of information will be used to decide everything from medical diagnoses to prison sentences and college acceptance. Actually, it's already unfolded. Massive neurohacking campaigns, precision-targeted marketing attempts that are aimed at your emotional state are coming for every human with an internet connection. And the very nature of reality is about to get really wobbly as deep fakes rise and change the nature of facts more and more. This war for your attention, enthusiasm, and trust is already happening. So how can one small or tall human do anything about it? Well, you could demand accountability from these big companies that rule your vision with their algorithms. There ain't much trust on Earth right now, so rebuilding it might require boiling issues down to the most fundamental version that can be agreed upon. People are vulnerable in a million tiny ways, which means that achieving functional consensus is going to take a lot of patience. You might even want to learn how to understand the people you disagree with. Without listening to them, you'll never even get close to changing their minds. Not voting because you think it doesn't do anything? Well, get involved in local elections, where people are still making decisions that influence your immediate future. Organize into strong coalitions that can address things that transcend race, gender, and cultural variety. Like economic inequality, for-profit prisons, algorithmic accountability, and wrongful discrimination. Can you learn to identify and avoid the messages that are amplified by corporations and botnets, even when they support your political perspective? Find us on Facebook or in the comments and let us know what you think. And to help brainstorm ways to escape the hold of big tech for our community. The conversation that follows with Stanford think tanker Dr. Jacqueline Schneider is our first on the subject, but we got lots more coming. Subscribe and ask for notifications if you want to gear up to fight the declining spiritual economy, the appeal of moral relativism, and the unending appeal of strongmen. Beyond that, we've lined up even more conversations about space colonialism, paranormal psychology, and the ever-mystified nature of human and animal consciousness. Take care, humans. We'll talk to you next week. Till next time. Bye. You study the future of warfare on Earth. Is that true? Yes, with the hope that there is none.
that you can design the right weapon so that nobody ever goes to war with one another. Wow. Have you figured that out already? Huh. <laughs> Not yet. We could stand to learn a thing or two from you, I think. Yeah. So it looks like we've been looking over your work and it seems like perhaps you think the future of war is online. Well, I think that um, a lot of the factors which get us to war um, and some of the ways in which states fight wars will occur online. And what does that look like right now already? Well, you know, if you look at states that are already at war with each other, for example, um, Russia and its hybrid conflicts, for instance, with Ukraine and Georgia, you see a use of uh, cyber operations prior to launching conflicts to try and alter the information narrative. And then once they've started dropping bombs, you actually see the use of cyber operations to decrease the effectiveness of air defenses, to try and create and sow confusion, to try and create battlefield advantage. And how is this different from older versions of propaganda? This sounds like propaganda, right? Yeah, you know, in some ways it's, it's not different. Hmm. Um, so much of what we've seen in terms of disinformation campaigns, especially state-led disinformation campaigns, are very similar to the same kinds of propaganda that you've seen, you know, back hundreds and even thousands of years as regimes try and control information in order to stay in power. The, there is a difference here, and that is the way that technology transmits information to, to so many different people in such a short period of time. Um, and the ability to use big data algorithms to try and understand how your propaganda machine is working so that you can um, really have kind of like um, fly by the wire experimentation when it comes to disinformation that's occurring um, you know, as you're working. And this is kind of what we saw the Russians doing in 2016. They kept throwing stuff at the wall to see what would, would work. And because it was an environment where you could experiment so much you saw that they were able to kind of adapt and innovate and change their disinformation methods in order to um, really try and influence the American electorate to distrust democracy um, and to, to vote for their candidate of choice. And what's their end game? Just a lot of chaos within your country? World power, world domination? So I think Russia, for Russia, I think it really the end game against the United States is to sow chaos. The idea is that anytime that the Americans are not cohesive or unified, that the Russians are able to get a slight advantage. And the Russians in general are at a significant disadvantage when it comes to the United States. They are a much weaker country when it comes to the military and economy. And, and Putin is a dictator who is concerned about his ability to stay in power. So when you are able to um, affect the American population to distrust each other, or to pick a candidate that supports a lot of pro-Putin policies, then that's, you know, that's a wonderful endgame. But I think the Russians in general are looking to sow chaos in the hope that that creates, um, you know, movements against democracy. I mean, a general um, a distrust in Americans. That's their goal. China is very different. China is a much more concentrated and focused in its disinformation campaigns. So for China, they care very much about their you know, regional issues. So Taiwan, for example, 
or um, territories that are contested, territories contested with India, territories contested, um, you know, over near Nepal and Tibet. Um, and so you see that a lot of their disinformation tactics are actually at creating this kind of regional hegemony. Um, and they're much less interested in US domestic politics, but they are very interested in general, in world population, believing that the Chinese um, message and that the Chinese regime, and especially the Xi Jinping regime, um, is, a, is a good and a, a possible alternative to a US-led liberal international order. And how effective are they? Is there a way that you have as scientists studying this to quantify it? Yeah, so I mean that is exciting. Is that because this a lot of this is happening online, you have um, kind of a new generation of scholars that are able to measure public sentiment uh, really by the minute. Now it's a very difficult game because in the end you're trying to understand not only how people feel, but how those feelings can translate into political action. So it's easy for me to measure, for example, how much somebody likes something on Facebook or how many responses something gets on Twitter. What's a lot more difficult for us as political scientists is trying to track those likes and those retweets to political action. Is this causing somebody to vote differently? Is it causing somebody to contribute to political campaigns? Is it causing somebody to join an uprising movement or a riot? And that's a much more difficult tracing mechanism. Though we do have scholars that are starting to look at and say, okay, we know that this information is spreading. What role does that information spread have on things like elections, insurrections, protest movements, um, and kind of these big political variables that we really care about. And how do you know that they're actual real engagement and not just bot engagement? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I um, I have not um, done this kind of work, but there's some really, really great work that's done by my colleagues at the Stanford Internet Observatory, for example, Renee DeResta. Um, and they have looked at um, patterns of, of how these... Uh, bots engage. And so there are both human and computer-based mechanisms that both scholars and now the social media platforms are increasingly using to disaggregate what is a real person and what are caricatures, what are botnets, what are personas that have been created in order to propagate a message. Um, and, you know, I think back in 2016, we first started hearing about disinformation this was more art than science. We were quite sure. Mm. Um, but I think that now the, the scholars and really the social media platforms um, ha, are doing a lot better job of trying to figure out what are real people and what are not. Interesting. And, and are there real people that are sitting behind these bot networks or these are computer programs that are, right? Because if it's like, real are they, people. Are they factories of people or are they actually robots? Or just robots. Well, if they're robots, that means that somebody's built a robot that's indistinguishable from a human? Yeah, it gets a little messy, right? So we do hear about these like botnet factories. And I think in my mind, sometimes when you hear this about, you know, botnet factories, you can't even envision these like traditional manufacturing factories where these just is like computers sitting at these, you know, at these tables. Um, 
And I mean, it's a little bit like that, right? So there's a different, lot of different methods that people use. So um, on one hand, you might have like a team of disinformation campaign folks. Um, so let's, for example, take the information research agency in Russia. So you have some team that's working there. And that team maybe is generating a lot of different personas, but they're human beings generating the personas. And those personas, because they're human beings behind it, are, are likely to be more effective at spreading information to a larger network of people and of building larger networks themselves. And then you have um, botnets, right, which are um, algorithm-based personas um, that the, a human being has at some point decided this is how they're going to react and engage and respond online. This is kind of the caricature of who they're going to be. These are, you know, their sayings and they're about me. Um, but those are all kind of generated by an algorithm that's generated by a human being and then proliferated to a variety of different um, mechanisms, whether those, you know, phones, iPads, whatever, that are then, you know, proceeding to engage. And um, so you have kind of two opposite. And what's interesting is that the personas that are more kind of human based are more likely to get more engagement. But there's been some really, in re really interesting research that shows it's not necessarily these kind of better personas that share the information better, at least in disinformation campaigns. It's actually having a wide net of lots of different um, kind of personas or, or botnets that are all presenting similar types of information so that kind of us cognitively, we're getting it from so many different um, perspectives that we think, well, this must be true because I'm seeing it everywhere. So, you know, the, the impact here is you're not necessarily swayed by, I mean, not necessarily swayed by aunt so-and-so. Instead, you're swayed by aunt so-and-so's friend's post that pops up, but I see it Lots of friends' friends' posts are posting it. And we found that that's actually potentially a more um, effective means of spreading disinformation than just targeting your aunt. Hmm. And that's because it starts to become anecdotal, almost? Yeah, I mean, we're still trying to understand the cognitive mechanisms that um, around which we as social media users engage with information um, but it seems like in this environment when there is more information than you can possibly parse, we're looking for shortcuts so that we can decide what information is true and what information is false. And if it's something that already supports a feeling that you have, seeing it from a lot of different places provides a valid mechanism to support what you kind of already believed it. Now, the opposite mechanism, trying to convince somebody to change their mind, that's different. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of more of where your aunt matters more because hmm. when it's much harder cognitively to change someone's mind and um, seeing it from a lot of different sources, then you tend to say, oh, I don't believe those sources. So we see that, right? I mean, I think in general, when we're having political discussions, at least in the United States right now, we, we often say, oh, well, I've seen this information, but I, I don't believe that, you know? And so that's when having those kind of strong relationships um, and having mutual conversations um, makes it a little easier to change someone's mind. But in general, always harder to change someone's mind than just to um, continue or strengthen a belief that already exists. And is that weaponized? Mm. 
It's a good question. I think we use the vocabulary or the lexicon of war um, a lot when it comes to information, partly because we live in such a data-enabled society that by using a lexicon of weaponization or war, it helps us to connotate how important this digital thing that's happening is. Mm. So in general, I, I, I try not to use the lexicon, but I understand the premise. And the premise is that you're taking information and you are trying to manipulate information in order to create political effect. And I think that it, that is definitely happening. It happens both domestically and internationally. So is there a risk that countries will disconnect from each other on the internet in order to prevent this? Well, this is happening, actually. Mm. Um, a, some people call this the balkanization of the internet. Um, and on one hand, you have countries that are pursuing this as an out an outlay of their domestic kind of censorship. So think of countries like China and Russia, and these countries have always tried to build um, internet infrastructures that are more domestically owned, that allows the state to have control of the information that its citizens receives, the information that people who are communicating with its citizens receive. And so there's a real kind of state control of data. Data in that sense is very geographic. I mean, for those of us who are political scientists, it's kind of like the Westphalian idea of the state translates to data. So data has geographic borders. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the United States and the United States, who is the creator of the Internet and who has really vaulted um, economically um, and societally because of its digital innovation, believes in a free and open Internet, um, a free and open Internet that creates opportunities for economic prosperity free trade, the sharing of information. And there was a, a general perception going into probably 2016 that the, the open and free sharing of information was going to create more incentives for democracy and support a international liberal order led by the United States. Now, now there's something in the middle, though, which is the Europeans. And the Europeans also, they believe in data sovereignty in that... Um, if you're hosting your, your iPhone data on the cloud, if you're in the US, that iPhone data could be actually anywhere. We don't have a lot of rules about where it needs to physically exist. But if you're in the US, in some countries in Europe, that information needs to be stored in a server that exists in your country. Hmm. So it's kind of the hybrid between the US free and open, and then China and Russia were, are very close. And then you have the Europeans, which are kind of trying to figure out how do I regulate this space? So there are some boundaries, but also we have the ability to share information and for the promotion of, of liberal uh, values. So I wanted to ask you along those lines about this idea of in the United States, you talk about it being free and open, but there's obviously a great wealth of internet traffic controlled by a few platforms. Mm. And so in some sense, I guess in some like Jeffersonian sense, they're a fourth arm of the government in a sense, right? The media, the, the journalists. Eh? So what do you, how do you that fit into your model? Perhaps still the United States is the most open, but there's this other level of regulation that's not really addressed here. Yeah, I think this is um, a really active debate in the United States. Um, because for many years, the proliferation of large data companies that were either headquartered or owned by the United States, think of like Google and um, now Facebook, um, Twitter, Reddit, LinkedIn, these places where people are sharing and compiling 
compiling information. Yeah. Amazon, in some senses, you know, these digital behemoths that were collecting all this information. And really, I think for a long time, we thought of it as the U.S. as being a real advantage for the United States. Um, but the United States' relationship with uh, companies is not the same as, as China, for example. And I'm a believer in democracy and capitalism. So, so I'm, I'm good with that. I like that the U.S. doesn't necessarily um, run or can take, the U.S. Cannot, government cannot necessarily take all the data that is being filtered through internet service providers or, or these big data corporations. Um, but we have a bit of a more kind of a laissez-faire attitude towards these um, uh, economic incentives for data. That is increasingly coming into debate because we're seeing that these data corporations, that there is a real kind of public good and public consequence from the way that they use their data um, and what role the U.S. government should have in regulating these data collectors and data providers, um, both for kind of free speech, what are the implications for free speech? Um, what are the implications for, um, are, there, are there economic incentives for some companies to hold information that would otherwise be really good for, um, for human health or human safety? Um, and so I think these are really active debates that are happening right now. I think the Obama administration wanted was um, to have these debates, but it was very late in their administration. And then the Trump administration kind of forfeited it. And, and in the last year, a lot of these social media companies have had to experiment and try and figure it out themselves. And I think we're gonna to come to loggerheads here in the next few years because you have an increasingly interested Congress and a Biden administration that I think is kind of more ready to take on what are the appropriate lanes in the road for these big um, data companies. Well, this is something that I'm kind of looking at and it seems like the things that are appearing on the internet in this propaganda form are things that people really think and feel. Like they voice their real worries? They voice something that is below the surface, right? People aren't reading something that their Aunt Sally's friend is posting and suddenly coming into some sort of, you know, awakening. It's triggering something in them that they've already felt. Absolutely. I mean, that's how the Russian was so successful in 2016. It wasn't in creating new political movements in the United States. It was in finding the fissures that already existed in the United States and then exacerbating it. I think what a lot of people don't understand about at least the 2016 campaign was that the Russians didn't just um, innervate the Trump base. They also had a very, very heavy disinformation campaign on the left. Um, and especially aimed at the hmm. Black Lives Matter uh, group. And what the Russians were trying to do there was trying to um, convince those that were kind of voting in maybe a Black Lives Matter block that their vote didn't matter hmm. and that they should be disenfranchised and should not vote because their vote doesn't matter. And the memes and the tactics that they were using, they resonated because they pulled on hundreds of years of, of racist issues that the United States has had. And it created true threads about how the United States has disenfranchised the Black vote historically. And it took those issues and, and where it was most successful is when they, can pick, when they paired those with popular memes or um, kind of um, 
icons of, of the popular um, kind of society. And then that was then propagated through real members of the Black uh, Lives Matter community. Um, but the big difference between kind of maybe like the real personas and the Russians was that the Russians were explicitly trying to convince them to not vote. And then, you know, on the right, they were innervating to vote for Trump, right? And so they were kind of just trying to pull out these fissures that already existed. Um, and I think as you move into 2016 to 2020, you start seeing um, more of the domestic uh, campaigns of disinformation that are the, just pushing on these fissures that already existed and that had really been exacerbated by the Russians. Um, but then now we're bringing into it kind of real domestic movements, domestic movements that have been lingering under the surface, boiling under the surface. And now they've built a base. They've built Facebook groups. I mean, Facebook groups are a really large place where you see disinformation really coming together. And solidifying because your people are opting into groups of uh, very um, similar-minded individuals and then sharing similar information. So, um, Facebook groups has a large role to play in taking these kind of sentiments that maybe somebody was feeling alone in their you know house somewhere, and then they see, oh, this person in this other state feels the same way. And oh, this person, this other state feels the way. And there's kind of like sense of, there's all these people who were hiding it and feeling it. And now we all feel it together. And that creates this, this sense of a movement. I mean, political movements are all about how you go from the simmer to the boil. And um, Facebook in many ways, at least Facebook groups, um, in many ways creates the mechanism by which you catalyze from simmer to boil. Now that you mentioned Facebook, they had a big scandal with, what was it? Cambridge Analytica? That sounds like it had a very similar tactic in, oh, I can't remember, I think it was Trinidad and Tobago, where they managed to conduct a campaign to prevent people from voting in that election, right? Do you know about that? I mean, I've heard, I hadn't heard about the Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I don't follow them on as closely. I do think my, a lot of my colleagues at the Stanford Internet Observatory have been looking at the role of disinformation campaigns in other countries, um, countries in Africa. And actually, um, they've been looking at a lot of kind of Chinese and Russian disinformation campaigns mm. in these other countries. And um, so we're not, you know, the United States is not the only target in these disinformation campaigns. Um, but Cambridge Analytica is, you know, a good example of activity that was happening really like kind of out in the open. It was we there was not a sense that this was wrong and that it should not be something that occurs. Um, and I think that the norms for that have been changing. I mean, the norms here about what is appropriate behavior for social media companies is changing really quickly. Mm. Um, kind of led by the social media companies, which is um, interesting. Maybe it's, that's a very American, uh, very American reaction is to have the norms changing from business and not government side. Mm. Do you think that the U.S. government is conducting similar disinformation campaigns in other countries? Like, is it mutual? Well, you know, the U.S. Is, has conducted disinformation campaigns for I mean, a very long time. And really, <laughs> it's really hard to define kind of what is disinformation and what is diplomacy, for example. Mm. Um, you know, we have examples from hundreds of years ago of American, you know, 
diplomats and intelligence officers who are actively trying to influence the foreign policy and sometimes the domestic policy uh, of other states. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I don't think that it's, um, I think it would be hypocritical and inauthentic to say that the United States does not conduct its own form of propaganda. I mean, the Voice of America was an explicit propaganda machine trying to convince, um, you know, the the communist, that democracy was the right form of governance and that the United States leading this democratic order was also the right thing. And then, you know, we have a bit of a sordid history during the Cold War of being involved in disinformation campaigns, um, sometimes, you know, to, to the benefit of regimes that were, you know, not good with a capital G, right? <laughs> you know, uh, we we have supported um, kind of people who might look a little bit more like bad guys with these disinformation campaigns. Um, now, when it comes to the internet age and disinformation, the U.S. is it's this is not the U.S.'s forte here. I mean, generally, where the U.S. is quite good is either in kind of these very overt public messages about you know city on the hill, democracy, um, or these kind of subterfuge intelligence kind of campaigns, which we're, we, we try, we're not always as successful. And when it comes to emulating something like what the Russians are doing with the IRA, that's not really in the United States' playbook. Hmm. Um, the United States is just so- Why not? It seems so effective. Well, I mean, part of why it's effective is they're willing to have chaos. Hmm. Um, but I think the United States is much more controlled than that. Um, I think even though the United States has made errors in its judgment with disinformation campaigns in the past, it generally comes from a place of thinking that we are doing good. Um, and so disinformation campaigns that are necessarily um, aimed at changing domestic behaviors and I think the U.S. has a really vibrant internal debate about why, whether that's ethically or morally okay. I really do. I, I think I think that the United States believes that it should be held to a different standard. Hmm. And, and just, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Well, and then there's kind of a reality about the way we're bureaucratically organized today when it comes to the internet. And that is that, you know, the United States is not super clear about who is actually allowed by congressional authority to conduct these information campaigns. Hmm. So um, there are, this is, this gets super wonky, super interesting. And there are a series of titles that you have, that are laws that guide what different federal agencies do, whether what NSA can do, what the CIA can do, what um, the military can do. And so the military, which has this extraordinarily large budget, you would think of them as being like the, the front lines of information war. But they actually don't have, they are governed by an authority and that has to have a lot of congressional oversight, which means that these kind of subterfuge disinformation campaigns are just kind of less likely to be super effective coming from the military, which is a good thing. And so you're more likely to see kind of more effective campaigns come out of somebody like the NSA or CIA because they're able to operate under another um, title or authority that um, has less congressional oversight. So, um, but those are um, smaller organizations than, you know, the U.S. military, for example. And so you might just not see the same kind of kind of large scale campaigns that you would see out of, you know, Russia or China. Like China has the PLA doing this all the time. The U.S. has a very small group of information warriors that are actively trying to sow disinformation campaigns. Interesting. So I wanted to go back and look at it, your own country and 
some of the division that seems to have happened in the last year or so, or maybe it's going on longer than that. What percentage of that chaos, well, first of all, would you agree that there's increasing polarization and division within the civilian population? And then secondly, what percentage of that can be attributed to foreign actors versus the actual people within the country? Yeah, so this is evolving a lot. Um, I would agree that there is an increased polarization. Um, there is debate within political science about how novel that polarization is um, and whether this is truly you know, unique to other periods in US history. But we can agree that in general, there's more polarization than a few decades ago. Um, whether this is domestic or foreign, I think it's mostly domestic. And, um, you know, in 2016, we were really looking at Russia and the election, and we narrowed in on that. Um, but even the researchers that were looking at the Russian disinformation campaigns were trying to remind everyone, hey, you know, I'm briefing you about Russia, but like, there are, this is only happening because there's already these domestic disinformation campaigns that are happening. Um, and I think by 2018, we're seeing those foreign disinformation campaigns much less effective. Um, I mean, in general, foreign disinformation campaigns always come at a disadvantage because they don't understand American culture the way Americans understand it. Right. Um, and part of how you find like the Russians is, I mean, you, I'm sure everyone's seen it. You know, you see a meme and you're like, this is a little off, you know, like it's just not quite right. So they always come at a disadvantage, but your domestic actors don't come at that disadvantage. Mm. They understand American sensibilities because they are Americans. They know how to um, invigorate their base because they live next to them. They've seen them. They've grown up with them. Right. So, you know, that is um, they're more effective than foreign actors. I think we got a push by foreign actors. And then we had a highly divisive president who was encouraging a lot of these disinformation campaigns. You had a pandemic where disinformation was rife and became a, a highly politicized about you know, things like public safety and health. And then you get to where we are today. So I think all these things in concert have led to really a domestic problem is the department stoked sorry is the defense department concerned about domestic terrorism more than external terrorism at least in the information sphere i don't know if i'm allowed to call information terrorism but let's say uh chaos well that is a complicated question because the same titles and authorities that diff that um delineate what the Department of Defense can do in um, information warfare. Also, you know, delineate what the Department of Defense can do domestically or internationally. In general, the Department of Defense has almost no authorities or rights to look at domestic security threats. That's part of why we have the Department of Homeland Security. Mm. And I think those who study civil relations think this is part of what makes the United United States military more competent and more professional than other militaries has been its extremely focused look at external actors and not domestic actors. So, you know, it's also kind of why you see people like Jim Mattis and or even my colleague H.R. McMaster and who are were ostensibly sitting in political positions, but were trying very hard to um, 
be apolitical because of all those years of leading a, a ostensibly apolitical and internationally focused Department of Defense. But this kind of comes to a head when you start talking about January 6th. And you see that so far they found that you know, potentially 20% of the rioters had a military background. Mm. And then when you start unpeeling these layers and you find, oh, wait, we actually have a decent amount of um, white nationalism and um, kind of those, the, uh, those who were kind of supporting the insurrection that are in our active duty force okay, how do we deal with, this becomes a domestic security threat to our external national security. Hmm. And this is what Secretary Austin um, is trying to combat in the very first few days of his, uh, of his taking charge of the Department of Defense. And it's going to be a very complicated, very difficult question for the Department of Defense because they're not um, trained to think of themselves as the security threat. Hmm. Now, that was a really strange insurrection, as far as I could tell from space. It almost seemed like the, uh, the defense, whatever defense was in place at the Capitol, sort of stepped out of the way and let it happen. Is that, am I seeing that wrong? Or it just seemed kind of strange. I'm not sure that that's what happened. I think we're still figuring out. Um, and I think that's where um, disinformation can sit, right? Because if um, we have predispositions, um, it's hard before you have all the information not to assess one way or the other. Um, you know, I mean, I was watching it from, you know, YouTube thousands of miles away. And I had some perceptions that later when I saw the videos that were showed, for example, in the impeachment hearing, I thought, oh, my goodness, I had no idea that was happening. Mm. So I think they're still figuring that out. Um, I know they are thinking about um, running a commission to, um, to really get to the truth of these things. And I think part of the United States being a resilient um, and trustful and whole society is in doing that hard work of trying to get all the information um, before we, um, before we have make conclusions. So to get all the evidence on the table first. Absolutely. Evidence is weird, though, because you can get two people looking at the same collection of evidence and coming up with basically diametrically opposed conclusions, right? So two people can look at whatever's presented and see a justified rush on the Capitol versus something that's treasonous. You know, this is where we all thought, I think that people thought when information was going to be more ubiquitous that there was information was binary. Maybe it's because computer scientists were, you know, building, <laughs> they saw data as ones and zeros. But the reality is that information is not ones and zeros. It's this complicated way that we as human beings interact with things that have inherent uncertainties. And our personal um, abilities to parse through that uncertainty and trying to figure out what is true and what is not, and and kind of what you know, what benefits it, what makes allows us, as my economist colleagues would say, what allows us to make the most beneficial uh, decisions for ourselves. Good. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about strategies. I, I noticed in some of your talks previously, you'd mentioned that perhaps people should be looking closest at the pieces of information that reinforce their own worldviews as you know something where 
you're likely to fall victim to your own biases. It's too good to be true. What other strategies do you have that people at home can start to implement in parsing information? I, I think, I mean, the first step is exactly what you said. If it looks too good to be true, just sit on it, right? I do that way. <laughs> Sometimes there are things where I'm like, oh, no, she didn't, because I want it to be true. It's too good. But then if it, I'm like, oh, that's too good. That's too okay. It can't possibly be true. So, for example, like I'm a native Texan. I've never liked Ted Cruz. I start seeing things show up on Twitter that Ted Cruz is going to Cancun during the middle of like the biggest power outage winter weather in like hundreds of years of Texas history. I want to believe it. Like, of course you he know? did. I, so <laughs> I, you know, as somebody who deals with disinformation a lot, I thought, well, no, I need to look, you know, so I'm sleuthing, you know, and you're finding information. Um, but I really needed, I, I knew that what my bias was. So I really needed to see all those pieces of information before I, you know, really concluded with myself that it was true. And then even the more disciplined thing is to not tweet or Facebook message or, you know, put out in social media your first hack at something, but instead to sit on it. I mean, if you can even give yourself a few seconds before you tweet or respond to something, I generally find that I am, um, I have better takes if I have sat on something for a little bit longer. And where you see me kind of at my worst is where um, I have an emotional response mm. um, and respond very quickly. Or if I've had um, you know, a glass or two of wine, <laughs> that in general does not help my ability to stop disinformation either. So I mean, that's a really good tactic. And then I think increasing your diversity of worldviews. Um, I make it a point to never stop following somebody that I disagree with, especially people who I you know, think it's most egregious, so that I can try and understand kind of what do they believe, where are they coming from, who are their kids. Sometimes I think, you know, when you see on Facebook these people that you don't believe, you don't agree with them at all, it's easy to villainize them. And then sometimes seeing like, oh, but that's a picture of their kid. Like they're humans that have that we need to figure out how we empathize with one another and to get to the core of, of, of sharing this world together. Um, Where so can you, you find people that you disagree with? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Too easy? <laughs> Come to my Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we will. I mean, you should, I think there's a there's an old political science book that's like um, about bowling um, and how community groups and being involved in your communities and the this is you know a Robert Putnam book where he focuses on bowling and um, but I think especially after this pandemic is over and we can all interact with each other again and um, joining the these organizations going to the school boards and being involved at a local level and um, with all sorts of different types of people I think that is actually a really great way for us to engage with one another. And it's part of why the pandemic has made disinformation so rife, because we've all kind of had to um, decentralize, to turn into the tiniest cells and units of ourselves and in order to protect ourselves. And in doing that, we've lost a lot of that interconnectedness, the bridges, the fibers, the things that bring us together as a society and cause us to trust one another and understand one another and empathize with one another. People tend to accumulate, even in person, along political lines, though, right? It seems, it seems difficult to believe that a white nationalist and 
I don't know, a leftist would be in the same bridge club. They would be in different circles. The bridge clubs are inaccessible. Or the bowling club. Like, these are places where it's very difficult to actually run into somebody who you really vehemently disagree with. Or am I misinterpreting that? Well, I mean, let's be honest. Are we ever going to get the far edges? Probably <laughs> not. But if we can just have less people on the far edges and more towards the middle, I'd be perfectly happy with that. So, like, maybe you're white nationalists and you're the Antifa. I've never met an Antifa. I want to. I think. <laughs> Right. But you've met a white nationalist? <laughs> oh, no. I know. There is a circle there. Um, but, you know, maybe if these, we, these people, maybe we can't re-engage them. But maybe my the, my aunt, not my real aunt, my hypothetical <laughs> my maybe my hypothetical aunt and my hypothetical high school friend, maybe these people can interact more with my hypothetical colleague at my liberal university and and these people can kind of see each other and move more towards um kind of moderate centrist and then these guys on the and gals mostly guys on the far edges can can really become marginalized and less Mm. consequential voices in our political discourse well, it seems like right now they're not getting marginalized, though, right? So there's been this election, there's been a change in who's in charge, but it hasn't really made anything go away. It's just been pushed out into the shadows, and it's no longer the central focus of media and newspapers and hot takes or whatever else. But it's still there. It's still brewing, fermenting, whatever you want to... Bubbling. Absolutely. I mean, we'll see. I think we're still, the, the jury is out, right? And oh. um, about whether those people are going to kind of marginalize and disappear to the edges or whether they will continue to foment um, and create larger movements. Um, I'm slightly optimistic. I mm. feel like, and I don't have any quantitative analysis to support this, but I do feel like the um, the vitriolic level of our rhetoric at least in public discourse, whether that's public discourse being social media, um, I think that has dissipated a bit. Um, so we'll see. That could just be, you know... Um, just because of the president change? I was going to say, I mean, there, there's evidence that this is partly because President Trump has been banned from um, the major social media platforms and that um, without that kind of central figurehead, um, that it has decreased the amount of... Um, activity. Um, To be fair, that is kind of how populism works, especially very personalistic populist movements. So, you know, Juan Perón and Mussolini, Franco. Strongmen. Strongmen, but where it's very much based on kind of this very personalistic um, reputation. And it's, it's not about like in Trump's case, right? Like, it's not about being a Republican. It's not like, oh, I'm so excited about being a Republican. It's excited about being a Trumper, uh, being supportive of Trump, right? And so when you are no longer supportive of Trump, then you have to go back to like, well, what is Republicanism? And um, when it's a debate about ideas, um, that can be um, less emotional uh, than a debate about a person. Hmm. And so it seems like civil war would be the worst case outcome of this disinformation era. Do you think that that's still on the table? Do you think it was ever on the table? What's your take on that? <laughs> I, you know, 
um, maybe I'm too optimistic. I kind of never thought it would get that far, but I didn't anticipate the, um, the storming of the Capitol on mm. January 6th. Really? And um, my husband's a more pessimistic person, and he's been um, worried about civil war kind of for a while. Um, <laughs> no. Is so, he also a political scientist? No, no, he's an engineer. <laughs> oh no, he's even more practically minded. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I want to believe I have um I have colleagues at Stanford that are um kind of beautiful optimists. I think of Michael McFall as one of them. And and he's a strong believer in the the long-term strength of our democracy and the ability of our society to mend and heal and move forward. And right now I would like to believe him um, and hope that we have the opportunity, especially coming out of this pandemic, um, to find each other again and find kind of what, what makes Americans, um, not what makes Americans great or better or first, but like what are these kind of like shining principles that, that that guide and unite and make this country different in a in a in just a good way. That's hmm. beautiful. I want to go back to something that you said earlier to shift gears completely. You mentioned that there was disinformation campaigns by China and Russia all over the world. And there's also been a trend towards lower and lower faith in democracy, in democratically elected government. Do you think that those are related to each other? Well, I mean, the countries that they're um, leading disinformation campaigns uh, don't have strong histories of democracy mm. in general. Um, so, you know, they're, they're not like particularly, um, they don't have a strong repertoire. They don't have a long history or practice of being democratic institutions. So um, Chinese campaigns there. I mean, but really, I'll be honest, so Chinese campaigns are less about, so if the Russians are about spreading distrust in democracy, the Chinese are about spreading distrust in America. So it's a slightly hmm. different phenomenon. So the, the Chinese have a strong belief that government should not interfere with each other's domestic politics, unless you're Taiwan, because they don't view Taiwan as another state. And um, so the Chinese generally are not going to go after democracy per se, because they're very, very sensitive about other states going after their regime. Hmm. Um, think about kind of the motivations between a lot of, behind a lot of the Chinese actions. It comes from an inherent um, concern by the regime that they will not be able to hold on to this very, very large and actually extremely heterogeneous population that they rule. So they are not huge fans of meddling in other states' um, forms of government. So they have a similar challenge to the United States then, right? A, a heterogeneous population spread over a large area. Yes, yes. Um, and, a high, and a big difference is a highly centralized government, right? So they need people to believe that the government um, works and that, well, they need to believe that it that they support that people should support the government or it will be worse for them. Mm. <laughs> and there's a some benefit mechanisms there and there are a lot of punishment mechanisms there. So I mean that's kind of how the so when the Chinese are running disinformation campaigns, it's mostly to um to get support for um uh from these foreign countries for Xi or for Chinese initiatives within those countries or to generally support the Chinese kind of uh, way of viewing the world in international institutions. 
Um, so, you know, China has a series of territorial disputes with countries that are on its borders, whether it's Vietnam, India, I mean, <laughs> they came to blows with India this year, um, but they also have territorial disputes in the South China Sea. Um, so they are looking to influence um, those countries and the neighboring countries um, about those territorial disputes. And then when you're looking at countries like Africa or other that they've invested in, um, they're looking at to, to encourage the population to support, for example, the expansion of Huawei or the expansion of kind of Chinese interests in ports or rare earth minerals or oil. So it, it's um, a little different than Russians. The Russians are just trying to um, F with everyone because their view of the world is if everyone is less happy, we are better. Hmm, <laughs> and that's this, dismal. This is a slightly different um, strategy than the Chinese. And do you think that they will be successful? The Chinese? And the Russians, yeah. So to start with the Chinese, I think that if uh, this, the Trump foreign policy was very transactional. Um, support the United States because we're the best um, and uh, you need to pay for things because we've paid for them in the past. And, you know, it's a very transaction based. It was basically like real estate. And if you are a country deciding whether to align yourself with China or to align yourself with the United States, you're simply making decisions based on transactions. Who's going to give you more? Um, and in that kind of foreign policy competition, I think the United States might stand to lose because sometimes the Chinese are willing to give a lot because they don't care if you are imprisoning your population. Mm. They don't care if you are persecuting religious minorities. We'll give you 5G. We'll give you inf uh, investments in your port. Um, and so with that kind of foreign policy, you know, you it's hard to attract people sometimes to the United States and um, because we're not, we're more difficult to, we don't give aid to just everyone. We have these requirements. We actually have like congressional requirements about kind of the human rights. And um, so I think the Chinese, if they're, if they stayed this transactional foreign policy competition, the Chinese could actually win, right? Cause all mm -hmm. they have to convince is you get more from us than you get from the United States. Um, I think that's going to change under the Biden administration, and that might be more difficult for the Chinese to win these disinformation campaigns because you might see um, a U.S. that's more invested in, in its alliances and in partnerships. And um, when it comes to Russia, like, can they continue to be successful? Eventually, they the Putin regime will fall. Whoa. Wow! Uh, and you can see that with um, how worried they are about. Uh, Russian opposition. Um, they are trying to execute, murder, imprison, send a prison camp, um, anyone who poses any threat to the Putin regime. Um, you know, th but this is not a well-organized Soviet Union, um, and he is not Stalin. And so I don't think the Russian population will be willing to accept that kind of, um, that kind of repression especially when you're not providing as much in the economy as you should for that much repression. Um, so I, I think that the Russians, you know, they will sow trouble um, for a long time, but that they are a declining power hmm. and that in the long term, they will just not be able to be a credible threat to others. So they're, um, 
short-term nuance nuisance um need to deal with them and but they will kind of dissolve on their own and then what about the united states do you imagine it surviving as a union well i mean one thing going for us is we don't have um as clear a territorial way to dissolve <laughs> so um, absent, I think, Texas uh, and maybe Alaska, not many states have a way to secede. And there aren't, you know, even though those electoral maps often show all red or all blue, that's not really the case. You actually have populations that are a lot more purple, but just with, um, you know, a majority red or majority blue. And so I think it's less likely that it dissolves in that way. Um, what I'm more worried about, though, is that populists don't just die. Populist movements don't just die. And I'm more worried that we will continue to see this drive towards kind of personalist politics under the Trump uh, banner, which will further exacerbate the divisions in our society and eventually lead to some sort of political or even violent reckoning where um, we have to make a choice between a more um, populist government that um, looks a lot more like a... Um, dictatorship um, and erodes a lot of the checks and balances that we have kind of traditionally valued in the United States. Um, so I think that whatever happens in the United States will feel more like this kind of insidious threat, insidious threat, insidious threat, hopefully not to a catalyst that changes our kind of way of viewing the government. But until we deal with this kind of personalist populist movement, um, we are not in the clear. Hmm. Why is there such a strong base for that? Is that going to go away? Or is there a way of addressing that base? Strong without... base for populism? Yeah. Well, you know, if you put on your political science hat and you think, okay, what are indications that people have, that, that we have that, you know, states are going to have civil unrest? I mean, one of them is changing demographics. Mm -hmm. So when you have a majority, uh, a majority race, a majority ethnicity, a majority kind of cohesive type of people and that majority starts to not be the majority, which actually is occurring, right? Like it used to be the United States population was majority white um, and you had all these other minorities and not now um, you have the minority as a pack kind of are a larger majority. Um, and so that is, you know, a recipe sometimes for um, civil unrest because you have kind of a big change. Um, so will this go away? Um, I don't know. Oh, no. I, I hope we all find each other again and that um, goes away. But I think that it's incumbent on our, our today's politicians um, and public thought leaders to try and teach empathy and forgiveness and respect for one another while also really trying to rectify. We do have we have structural racism. We have problems in the United States that we have to deal with. And this may cause some people to feel more threatened. Um, but it needs to be invested in. And the reality is um, the solution to these disinformation campaigns is not a cyber strategy. It's an education mm -hmm. strategy. Um, it's a education strategy where we invest in all of our population across all of the, all of our incomes, across all of our races to create um, a more educated society um, where people have more opportunities um, to succeed. It's interesting that you say that education is the sort of the direction to move into. 
because I've seen people talking about this idea that the best way to deal with misinformation is just to not look at it and to avoid it entirely. For, I saw somebody, I think there was, we, we get a New York Times subscription out here in space and sometimes I read through the articles and there was an opinion recently that was something like, you shouldn't go and look at bad things written on the internet because those people are better at propaganda than you are. And so maybe if you read Stormfront, you will, I don't know, identify with the opinions within. And so there's this, there's almost this push to keep people from looking at things that could convert them to a bad mindset. I mean, I was raised evangelical Christian. That's what they told me. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is that sometimes you have to go into the world and the, you know, the people who's like me as an e raised evangelical Christian, the, the way actually that your faith survives after having to enter the world is, um, is by having a faith that is, that questions hmm. and that able to discern and take different pieces of information and when you're um, when you're not prepared to do that, when you, all you do is listen to the same information, and then you get information that 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 doesn't support your worldview, it either leads to kind of a complete, oh, I don't believe what I believed all those years, or um, you know, more likely, um, a complete rejection. And so that's why I do think it's important that. Um, I mean, I've worked with a bunch of tech people who are like, well, we can create these tech ways that people can see whether this information is good or bad. I'm like, well, I mean, we got Snopes. Like if people really want to know if information is good or bad, they can Snope it. They don't care. Mm. If you're what, you know, if you're, it's because it, you know, it's, you're uncomfortable with dealing with things that are um, counter to what you want to believe. And so we have to create individuals that are kind of individually more resilient. And I think you create that resilience by having these difficult discussions and difficult debates and teaching people how to, um, you know, like any scientist, how to discern information, how to discern the uncertainty behind information, how to make conclusions without certainty and then to understand where the conclusions that you have drawn um have weaknesses and where they can be disproven we should just mm. have everyone learn like a you know either social science 101 i mean that's my firm belief as a professor i um i view my success as not necessarily well let's say somebody knows more about cyber strategy at the end of my class or knows more about military innovation but that they um know how to tackle a question how to understand its uncertainties and then how to figure out how to um, prove or disprove or understand the strengths of their argument. That's that's what makes that's what I think kind of um, at least, you know, liberal arts education needs to provide to its students the ability to think through problems. But it doesn't have to happen at the university. We can be teaching um, young people how to question and think and reason. I love that. Mm -hmm. And I love how you've put a premium on the future of your country depending upon a new, renewed sense of compassion and connectedness to one another. But I wonder, in this sort of post-Nietzschean world that y'all are wading through right now where religion is becoming less and less popular, what sort of spiritual unification is possible in the future where everyone has passed through this rational portal and the idea of supernatural phenomena is sort of beyond consideration. I'm very curious what you humans will come up with next. Oh, who knows? That's how we, uh, 
<laughs> the way we deal with these questions is how our our you know our mankind how mankind has uh survived or not survived or how it's done the work <laughs> to itself and how hopefully it does its best and i think at its core kind of your beliefs about human nature whether human nature is good or bad or whether human nature can be changed um affects your your beliefs about uh how <laughs> <laughs> whether information leads to the end of the world or to a kind of better world. Uh, I grew up with a belief that human humans were inherently evil. Whoa. I was evangelical. Um, and so uh, information, not necessarily good, but I, I increasingly I've become Methodist um, and Methodists believe in that the human nature actually doesn't have to be inherently evil and that we can become better. and that. Um, love for one another um can actually create that ability to create a better world do you think this methodism has a chance at grabbing a hold of the whole of humanity well historically no i mean that's not the way we work <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me have in this year of just absolute pessimism and cynicism and my children are around me every second of the day let me have my moments of believing that we're going to come out of this finding ways to reunite with each other <laughs> together and find better like uh, better ways to connect and love each other um and become um you know just some, some level of peace and harmony um, at some point in the future. Nice. I, I, be I believe that. in you guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we only have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you a question I love to ask all humans at the end, which perhaps... Now that we're done with the optimism. Yeah. Now that we're over the optimism, I want to ask what you think is the biggest threat to your entire species in the next near future, the next 100 years, 10 years. Hmm. Not even so, in your professional opinion, but just in your human opinion. So I think, you know, um, I think there are two real threats. One is kind of this threat that um, digital dependencies and disinformation and erode trust. And with the erosion of trust, it erodes kind of basic social goods. And with the erosion of basic social goods, we end up in war, right? It's not good for everyone. That's one thing I worry about. And I worry about it quite a bit. The other thing I worry about is an exogenous shock, which is, uh, well, kind of exogenous, which, which is climate change and the way in which um, extreme weather patterns, um, the rising sea levels and changes in our global climate um, will end up creating scarcity um, or create new incentives to bring out the worst in each other. Um, and that, you know, kind of this the pairing of disinformation, which disintegrates trust with climate change will create a lot of incentives for fierce competition and violence um, and war. Um, and those are the things that worry me. It worry me for my, my daughter's generation. Hmm. Well, hopefully we can figure it out before your daughters have to deal with it. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Schneider. Mm -hmm. It was really wonderful to talk to you. Absolutely. Good luck. Bye. Bye.